Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Future Projection Podcast. It is episode five. I am Carlos Galazzo, as always, joined by Ben Badler. Ben, what's going on, man? How you doing? I'm doing great, Carlos. Doing great. Just got our, our draft top 300 prospects up right now. So uh, I'm sure... I'm sure at various points in, in this process, we've had different, or just even in the last two weeks putting this together, it seems like we've had a, a, a three or maybe even four different guys in that, in that number one spot. It seems like it just keeps changing day by day or start by start for, mm-hmm. for Kumar Rocker and Jack Leiter. And it's not like Jordan Lawler is doing anything to drop his stock either. So it's, it's kind of fun where like in some years, I mean, it's awesome when you have a Steven Strasburg and you're like, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this guy is maybe the best pitching prospect I've ever seen at the amateur level. But it's also pretty fun, I think, when we have this pretty open race for who's going to be the number one overall pick. Yeah, it definitely is. And and I think I would push all the listeners who haven't checked it out yet to definitely go see the the top 300 just published uh, this morning. We are recording this on Wednesday. Uh, and I was up pretty late last night getting kind of the finishing touches on this thing ready to go. So Ben, you might have to carry me through this podcast. It's weird. We normally record at night. We're recording uh, and daylight is coming through my window here, but I'm more tired than I normally am when we record these podcasts. So my sleep schedule is solidly, solidly screwed up. But no, I think you're, you're spot on about kind of the top of the class, how it's shaping up. I would I would describe it as like a top three of players right now, based on the feedback we are getting. Um, right now we have Kumar Rocker number one on the list, but I don't think that's a consensus opinion in the industry by any means. I think the consensus opinion in the industry would be that there is none at this point. It seems like Kumar Rocker, Jack Leiter, and uh, Dallas Jesuit High School shortstop Jordan Lawler have kind of their supporters depending on the team or the scout that you're talking to for the the one one spot and then I think that that's probably the elite tier at this point with Marcelo Meyer in California maybe like kind of the the fourth guy of that group or just climbing into that group or, or maybe about to get in that group I didn't get as much feedback for him as a as a number one guy today um, compared to those other three but I think as his season progresses and as he gets seen a little bit more it would not be surprising um, if he was kind of solidly in this group of players and teams were lining them up one through four in all sorts of different orders so yeah it, it is fun from a coverage perspective just to to see how these guys line themselves themselves up throughout the season because I think I've mentioned this previously but the first three drafts I've done with Baseball America the one one guys have been pretty obvious pretty early on um, it was Adley Rutschman was the the most obvious one in 2019 and then last year, Spencer Torkelson was, I mean, I would say it was pretty close between him and Austin Martin, but it seemed like most people in the industry preferred Torkelson. Um, 
And then in 2018, I would say entering the year, Casey Mize was not seen as the one-one favorite, but he he pretty quickly established himself at that caliber. Um, and now, five weeks into the season, we kind of have what looks like a three-horse race for one-one, um, and a really solid group of players at the top. Um, it might be really good to pick number three or number four in this year's class, depending on how it pans out. So if you're fans of uh, the Red Sox or the Tigers, maybe that's good for you. Um, unless I'm sure everyone out there has probably developed who they think is the the top player in the class. But I guess as we talk about this, one of the, the more fun things that we've done on this podcast, and we've gotten some pretty good feedback for it, is the sign one, trade one, cut one game. And since we're talking about the top three players in the class who all have arguments for 1-1, I feel like we should probably play that one with Kumar Rocker, Jack Leiter, and Jordan Lawler. Um, I kind of go, and like you said, I kind of go back and forth by the day. I feel like I've had so many different orders of how I would line them up, so many different orders of how teams line them up. Um, I really don't see a lot of separation at this point. But Ben, do you have any strong feelings on how you would personally line these guys up? strong feelings no i i don't see i don't see how anybody unless you're gonna tell me otherwise is is can have a uh a, a super strong feeling on like oh wow no this guy like jack lighter is head and shoulders above kumar rocker or or jordan lawler and or or either or or the other way around it's i i think if any of the if the draft was tomorrow and and the pirates took any any of those three guys or number one overall i don't think anybody would say well i wouldn't say anybody but it it wouldn't be an overdraft in any of those cases these guys are all playing like number one overall picks right now in in the country so i i don't see i don't see somebody who's clearly head and shoulders above the rest of the group and it's I mean, it's it's it was fun watching Vanderbilt <laughs> over the weekend where Kumar Rocker goes out and it looked like, oh, all right, well, now he took a step forward. He's got to be probably maybe in the, uh, you know, at, le- at least between him and Leiter, which is a much easier comparison as two college pitchers in the same rotation facing the same lineups basically <laughs> right, 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 right after each other. So it's it's about as easy of a comparison as you can make so it seemed like rocker was moving ahead maybe a little bit and then jack lighter goes out and throws a no hitter with what 16 strikeouts yeah in his first sec game that he's yeah yeah which i mean that's the we know we don't have a as as much as we really like jack lighter and have liked him since high school and he just uh, didn't have the track record at that Kumar Rocker has, has just has had the opportunity to have, and now mm-hmm. lighter one SEC start, <laughs> no hits, sixteen strikeouts, just completely, completely dominant. Yeah, he walked the first batter and then was perfect afterwards. Is pretty unbelievable and finished with 124 pitches, I think. So, yeah, it was a pretty loud outing, and, and it's not surprising that those two guys are. are much must watch college baseball this year i mean just imagine if you're a college team and you have to face kumar rocker friday night and then <laughs> you don't get any any relief after that you're just straight to jack lighter the next day it's got to be a tough a tough spot if you're a hitter going in to face vanderbilt at any point this year 
Yeah. Oh, and then Jordan Lawler. Not that he's going to Vanderbilt, but also a, a Vanderbilt commit. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of Vanderbilt flavor on the podcast this week. Yeah, I I think if if we're going to play sign one, trade one, cut one, to me if if I had the number one overall pick today, if I'm the Pirates, I would still take Rocker. Um, I just I don't think. I, I don't think there's a huge difference in, in stuff or pitchability between the two of them. I like the track record with Rocker. I, I like the stuff with Rocker. It's, it seems like he's going to be a durable guy too. Obviously there's risk with every pitcher. So, so you mm-hmm. never know, but just check so many boxes you look for in, in a pitcher. Uh, I, I would, I would, I would take him first overall. If we're playing, so I would sign him. If I'm going to trade one, so the guy I would trade would I, I would probably trade Jack Leiter. And I say that if if I had the number two pick in the draft and and Kumara Rocker was off the board, I, I might still take Jack Leiter, mm-hmm. number two. But I feel like I could get more in trade value maybe for for Jack Leiter than oh, interesting. than Jordan Lawler. More some. Just maybe some more name recognition, some more <laughs> some more fame, some more history on him. So hopefully I can get some more in in trade there. Uh, okay. And then I guess cut Jordan Lawler. That doesn't sound right. I want to want to cut him, but I got to play got to play the game. So that would be that would be my okay my well, pick. I, I am glad that we are going to have different orders for this after last week doing it with all three people. Uh, having the same order for Acuna, Soto, and Tatis. But I think my I would sign Jordan Lawler. And I, I do think you're right that Lawler is probably the least famous of these three players in the class. Obviously, the Vanderbilt spotlight and Jack Leiter being the son of a, a very prominent major league pitcher and Kumar Rocker being the biggest name in college baseball really helps them. But I think for me, when all of these players are so neck and neck, I really like the appeal of going for a hitter just because of the the risk factors in general with pitchers. And this isn't anything specific with Kumar or Jack, but it's like if I'm having to like nitpick and figure out which one I want and there's no clear-cut talent difference, at least based on the feedback I've got at this point, I just feel like the toolsy shortstop profile is a really good one to to take. I think there's less risk there in terms of injury. I think there, if you just look at this overall game, I feel like there is less that you can maybe pick apart. And, and maybe that's because Kumar and Jack are in college and they've been seen more. So there's more time for them to get picked apart by scouts. Mm. But I really just like the fact that there's no tool in his and his tool set that you can really look at and, and critique too much. He's a really good hitter. He's extremely athletic. He runs. Uh, he's hit for power. His, his body looks like a frame that's going to add strength and tap into more power. Uh, he's got a good arm. He's a good defender at shortstop. I mean, I just feel like there's a lot of safety and upside. I mean, that's what you're talking about when, when we're talking about the top players in the class. So I just love that profile overall. I mean, if, if this guy is in the same kind of conversation as like a pre-draft Royce Lewis and like the Bobby Witts and the CJ Abrams of the world, like anywhere near that conversation, I, I feel like I'd be pretty excited. Um, 
and honestly, just the pitcher, the pitchers in general, just the the added risk factor probably would scare me a little bit off if I had to just pick of the three. So I'll, I'll, I'll sign Lawler. I think, and this is even tougher deciding between rocker and lighter because I really do go back and forth so frequently. I do think lighter probably has a little bit better feel to pitch. I think he, he at least seems more comfortable spotting his fastball in different quadrants of the zone. Um, and, and the scouts we've talked to like the fastball characteristics that he has specifically. Um, I think a lot of scouts think that pitch plays up a little bit better than Kumar's does. Um, Just because of the spin or, or the I would guess the spin. I don't, yeah. I think we have some RPM data on, on lighter and rocker like in their high school days when Trackman released some info at a few events like USA baseball or something like that. So we could check offhand. I, I don't know what the spin rate is, but I mean, even if you just look against South Carolina, the amount of swing and miss that he got in the zone was pretty impressive. And for, now for that, lighter, you mean, right? For lighter. Yeah. For lighter. Yeah. And and now that he's doing that against SEC caliber teams, I feel like that will start to become more apparent just how, how well these pitches play when you are you're facing really talented hitters. Um, at the same time, I think rockers slider is, is the better breaking ball of the two. I think it's a real wipeout pitch. It gets a lot of chase. Even if he's not landing it in the zone, he still makes hitters look silly. Uh, I, I think it's one of the better breaking balls in the entire class. Um, so, so as I'm talking here, I, I guess I would probably trade lighter and cut Kumar. But again, if you ask me in an hour, it could be different. It could be a different order. So ho- hopefully this little thought experiment shows just how, how difficult it is to kind of figure out what the order is for teams and just for us uh, putting the rankings out there. Yeah, no, I think this one's going to go down to the wire when, and maybe who, I mean, maybe Marcelo Meyer, like you said, his, his season just got started. Maybe even he jumps in if, if not the number one overall pick, but maybe he, maybe he even jumps into this top two, three, four mix yeah, I, as well too. I think it's pretty safe to say that, that he's in that top four group. I just have gotten to this point less feedback of him specifically number one. So I, I don't think like, I think you could probably find a team that might have Marcelo over lighter or over Lawler or over rocker, but not in the number one spot. One of those other guys would be higher. Like I think there'd probably be maybe one to five sort of separation from these players, depending on the team. Um, just kind of trying to capture this consensus as we go on. If, if there even is a consensus that develops will be the challenge. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely think he fits on talent with these guys. And it's just a matter of getting those evaluations and, and letting his season kind of play out. But it, it's a very good group of talent at the top, I think. Yeah. I wonder where a <laughs> rocker or, or lighter, if you put them in the, in the pirates rotation right now where, where they might slot in is not yeah, going to be, be someone, a good team. <laughs> I'm sure plenty of people have asked this, but like, do you think that if you put them in the major leagues right now in whatever role they would be able to have success? I know this doesn't ever happen. I mean, I guess Garrett Crochet just did it last year, so I can't really yeah, say that. Yeah, I mean, we just saw, we saw Crochet do it. Mike Leak went straight to the majors. It's it's not like we don't have guys who are – Rocker's, what, 21 now? And, and later, I think, is 20, right? So it's, it's not like we don't see pitchers who are that age pitching in mm-hmm. 
in the big leagues. I mean, you have to Yeah, be... they'll both be 21 years old when they're drafted. I think Kumar is a few months older than Leiter. Yeah, so it's it's not like we don't see pitchers that age pitching at the major league level. Obviously, if you're dealing it, you're you're a top prospect in in baseball, but it's 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 hard to w- without having a 2020 season last year or just having such a limited 2020 season, I should say, it's hard to feel super confident in that, but I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying they would go out and be front of the rotation starters mm-hmm. right away, but I, I certainly think they could hold their own as you know back end type mm-hmm. starters right now. With obviously the upside to be front of the rotation guys, and I'm you know looking around the rest of that <laughs> Pirates projected rotation. <laughs> not uh, not a lot of players I would count on for an ERA under four this year yeah <laughs> well and two with this conversation it's just like teams who are actually picking at the top here what are the odds that they're incentivized at all to push a, a prospect like this that quickly it just it's oh not, yeah no it's not no no no, no no I don't think I don't think either of these guys would be yeah would and be crochet was drafted in the middle of the first round to a team that was actually competing so you kind of see where it made some sense um but yeah are there any other players, big risers, big movers on the board that you want to touch on there? I will say that while I was kind of compiling this, there is a ton of movement. And I think that's kind of to be expected. Every, every scout that I've really talked to throughout this whole process expected this season to be crazy. The, the limited evaluation time last year meant that like we entered the year with less consensus than typical and, so there's so much movement now, especially with the college players on the class. I would have to look into our previous 200 to 300 updates and expansions to see like how this movement compares. But it really felt to me like more movement at this stage on the board than, than I've ever done since 2018. Um, I mean, we had, I think, almost half of the players who were on our preseason first in the preseason first round range, over half of them had um up down movement greater than 10 spots which is fairly significant um i mean there's always movement in the draft just because of how the process works and then the players and the evaluations but it just seems like there's more this year um and i would i would guess that that teams feel the same way yeah i think it's i mean like you've been saying for going back for a year now that it's you're, you're going to see more movement for or more variance for the college players who have more ability to swing their status because there were, there was no or, or such a very limited college season last year there was no Cape mm-hmm. Cod League there was no team USA no summer college national team there were very few you know big a, a, a lot of college players just didn't play last summer so you have normally you, you have history on these players and and you have those that that history to anchor to but you don't want to be as stuck to your priors in this case as, as before. So I think it's a, probably a, I would say a combination of that, but also the fact that we and probably clubs also just have more access to information on players now than, than they did, uh, especially at the college level compared to even, even a couple, couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I th- I'm curious because I think, with the restructuring of the minor leagues, I kind of assumed that more teams would just start going 
I mean, there was already a trend to draft college heavy from most teams. Um, They're taking more and more college players as the years have gone by. And, and with the way the minor leagues have been restructured, I've kind of assumed that that would only continue to increase maybe at a, a higher rate just because you have less time for all these players to actually prove it in pro ball. You have less spots. Um, I think they're, I don't know where people think now in terms of the concern about losing the lower levels, like how that impacts younger players development in the minor leagues and whether or not you want to kind of let the college game do some of that development for you. But I'm curious this year if teams go the opposite direction, because I'm sure a lot of them still feel safer and more, more uh, confident in their evaluations for the high school players, just because again, the high school players evaluation period was much more of a traditional scouting environment than the college guys. So I'm really curious to see if there are any teams that just go really high school heavy because they feel good about the looks they got last summer when they were all playing against each other. And and with the pitchers, obviously it's easier to evaluate um, in, in less competitive environments, but I'm really curious to see how that plays itself out. Yeah. Or two this year, obviously, I don't, I don't think it'll be a major factor, but I think it's maybe lurking a little bit in the background too, where look, a lot of teams reduced headcount in their scouting department last year. They've, they've cut back on travel budgets in some cases. So if, if you're doing that, I would think that would have a greater impact on your ability to evaluate high school players where for the most part, you really need to be out there and seeing these guys in person compared to, college players where you have so much more access to video for all these guys yeah with the college guys you just have more access to performance data to like college analytics data whether that's TrackMan, whether that's synergy video at most of these college um parks that you can have access to i mean you can do a lot of you can do a lot more remote scouting during the spring with college players than you can high school players i think that's an excellent point. And, and for the teams who did have to cut back on their scouting staff or chose to cut back on their scouting staff. Yeah. Chose to, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a lot tougher. Like you said, I think that's a really good point. So, you know, it'll just be fun for a variety of reasons for the players involved, for the processes behind the selections, the fact that the draft is going to be, I'm, I'm assuming it's going to be 20 rounds. We still don't have an official round number, but it's per the agreement that the union and MLB agreed to last year it has to be between 20 and 30 rounds. I think the assumption around the industry is that it'll be 20, but the fact that we're going back to at least a a slightly more typical draft length for all these reasons, this draft is so interesting to follow. It is probably the most challenging to cover from my perspective because of all these, but, but that only makes it more fun. So it's been fun. Um, I guess there are a couple other players that I want to touch on that have moved up. We've, we've talked about Sal Frelick. We've talked about Henry Davis on this podcast. They both had healthy bumps. The one guy that are the two players that I wanted to touch on really quickly are Jackson, Jackson Job and Bubba Chandler, two high school right-handed pit. And they're actually both two high school two-way players. Both are shortstops and right-handed pitchers, but these guys have done a really good job so far this spring. There's been a lot of heat. Uh, at their at their games early on. And at this point, we have Job Chandler and Andrew Painter as kind of the top tier of high school pitchers, whereas in the preseason, Painter was kind of sitting there by himself. 
in that top high school pitching tier. So the fact that we have those two moving up the boards, we have guys like um, Brandon Clark, who is a left-hander out of Virginia, who has moved up. Um, I think we have him like just outside of the first round range, um, a left-hander up to 97. There are a lot of high school pitchers that have done really well for themselves. And I'm also curious too, because the general trend is that teams have gone away from high school right-handers specifically in the first round, but we have a couple guys who are trending up and between Job and Chandler, they're two freak athletes with pure stuff with pro potentialized hitters too. So they're just really interesting players to monitor. Yeah. Job has that really natural feel for mm-hmm. spinning the baseball with that, with the, with the breaking stuff that he has for me, that's, that's something that's important for me seeing in a, a high school pitcher. I think mm-hmm. you have, I mean, it's not like it's a light fastball, but you know, get up to the mid nineties. It's maybe not, uh, you know, a chase petty type fastball, but he has that really innate feel for being able to impart spin on a, a baseball that I think you just can't teach. I mean, I, I yeah, I, I think I, his, his breaking ball, at least in terms of consistency, seems like the, like the highest spin breaking ball I can think of since Carter Stewart and, and Carter Stewart was really famous for his curveball. Jobs is, is a harder slider, but it gets to that 3000 RPM range, which is really that like, elite tier that I think of when a player is consistently getting there. It's really, it's a really impressive pitch just on its own. Uh, and he has really good feel to manipulate and land that pitch as well. So it's, it's a real factor for him. And we've heard reports that his changeup has progressed and his flashing plus as well. So if you're sitting there with, with three potential plus pitches as a right-hander with really good athleticism uh, and pretty solid control at this point, those are a lot of factors to like. And I think, I think this is kind of the new pitcher that teams like in the first round, not necessarily the hardest throwing player in the class, um, but guys who you can look at, you can project on, they have solid stuff that you can project to get a little bit better as they continue to fill out and grow um, and, and athletic kids with repeatable deliveries. So I think he has a lot of indicators and starter traits that teams really like to see. Yeah, that's exactly what i was just about to say um but yeah i mean those, those are kind Sorry of the, to cut you off ben <laughs> no those are kind of the ingredients you you look for in a pitcher who's going to be able to miss a lot of bats it's yeah it's 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 a it's a good fastball but also just that 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 feel for spinning the the breaking ball the the change up that sounds like uh it's developing into a real weapon for him the athleticism yeah all the it it seems like all the definitely an arrow up guy right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also worth mentioning that teams are still kind of waiting to see the college bats. Uh, a couple of the guys that we had in the top 10 round or the top 10 range, Matt McLean, Judd Fabian have either been just kind of okay or trending down. Um, but one high riser on the college hitting side is North Carolina state's catcher, Luca Tresh. Um, he's probably been the biggest, I think he might be even outside of Brandon Clark. He's the biggest mover up on our board so far. We had him in the 150 to 200 range on the preseason, but he's really hit at a high level, hitting for power, loud exit velocities, um, pretty good hit tool from all the scouts I've talked to, uh, and kind of following in Patrick Bailey's footsteps at North Carolina State. I think the biggest question with him is going to be, what kind of a defensive catcher is he at the next level and and how high are scouts on his defensive ability? Because if he has those offensive tools, 
and teams think he can catch, become a solid catcher or even a fringy catcher, he's going to go higher than where we have him right now on the board, I think. But as the kind of, as the season progresses, I think that's going to be what teams are keying in on is just what kind of catcher is he really? And with, with Bailey obviously playing the position the previous two years, scouts didn't really get a chance to see much of him. So they're just now getting a chance to, and, and he's probably one of the bigger college risers in, in the country. Yeah. Is, is the question with him more just that scouts haven't been able to just to see him catch much because obviously of everything that happened last mm-hmm. year and, and Bailey being ahead of him on the depth chart being a first round pick last year. Is, is it more of that or, or is it just more, no, we've, you know, we, we've seen him, but we, eh, it, it's, it's still a little bit shaky. We think. I think it's probably both. I think, I think that's probably the best way to describe it is just the lack of looks in general and the looks they have so far this year for, for people who like him, I think they still acknowledge that he has a lot of work to do to get to that sort of defensive catcher you need to be. Um, he's a one knee down kind of guy. I'm not sure what the, where the industry is at in terms of that um, and, and projecting it forward. I think there's no doubt that you can be a successful catcher if you're operating in one knee down stances there are a lot of teams that don't really like to see that and would rather you be in like a traditional squat and show the flexibility to get low and frame without having to go to a one knee stance. And I think there are some, I think he can refine himself in terms of receiving and blocking um, really across the board. I think there's room for improvement there. I've only seen him really bearing down on what he was doing one time against the, uh, when they were playing Miami and it was not a great look behind the plate, but again, it was just one look and it was my look. So it's not the same as a scout bearing down on this guy. But I think so far, everything that I've heard is that there needs to be some improvement there. Uh, but again, we've talked about it before, the difference in an amateur catcher evaluation and a pro and what these guys turn out to be in pros is, is maybe the biggest defensive split in terms of evaluations that, that I've noticed. And I, that's been communicated to me before from teams as well. So He's a really interesting one to watch. I'm curious, do you do you put a lot of weight or do you really bang a guy or 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 think negatively of them if they set up in that just like new one knee stance a lot? Does that really matter to you? It's that 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 itself is not super important to me, but obviously, like you said, I think it's a big polarizing topic in in mm-hmm. the in the industry. We should definitely have a, a guest on at some point uh to to go to go through that because yeah i think kind of the 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 kind of the old school or traditional mentality is is to have that more traditional setup and that the one knee stance impedes your ability to block even though it's the, the proponents of it say well maybe but it it helps you steal a lot more strikes and that 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 has more volume of of impact overall, but I, I look. I think we see successful catchers with both stances. It's I'm not a cookie cutter guy, so mm. I I think you can be a successful defensive catcher in 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 either position. Yeah, definitely. I, I think those are the the biggest ones that I wanted to hit on the podcast. But again, if you guys do want to see kind of all the movement and reports on all the players uh, that we have ranked right now in the top 300, definitely check out the list. It's on the site now. If you're listening to us, uh, it's live. So definitely check that out. 
Um, ben, we can touch on more players or more draft if you want, Ben, but I know we have a lot of other topics uh, that we can get into as well. Yeah, I mean, it does, it does seem, though, like – I mean, we, we talked about some of the college bats and, and we've talked about some of the guys at the top of the class with, with uh, Rocker and Leiter and Waller and, and, and Meyer. It's, it does seem weird that there's – at least as of right now – there's nobody in that top three group that's a college bat. And it seems like normally those are the guys <laughs> that teams would really prize at the mm-hmm. top of the draft. And it, it just doesn't seem like, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's anybody who's kind of jumped up. I mean, I mean, there's certainly guys who I think will be, there are multiple guys right now who if, if the draft were today would be top 10 picks who are college hitters, but it, it it doesn't like doesn't seem like Adrian Del Castillo or uh, you know certainly Judd Fabian or or Matt McLean have kind of jumped up and no, nobody's like vaulted themselves into yeah. into that group. It seems like yeah, it's interesting because I think you'd have to go back to 2017 to get to a draft class where there wasn't a college hitter taken among the first two picks. In 2018, you had Casey Mize and Joey Bart. In 2019, you had Adley Rutschman as the number one guy, and then. In 2020, uh, you had Torvalson and Heston Kerstad off the board first. In 2017, it was a, honestly a similar draft class in the sense that there there wasn't really a an obvious top guy. <clears throat> I could be hindsighting this a little bit, but that was the Royce Lewis draft with him going number one, Hunter Green two, Mackenzie Gore three, Brendan McKay four, and then Cal Wright five. And it seemed like those that group of five was kind of the top grouping. And I'm really curious to see if it, it kind of plays itself out like that in 2021, where we never really get an obvious one-one guy. It's more of a group of players. But looking back at that draft, it is weird to see two high school pitchers in the top three. That seems very foreign to me after the last three draft classes. We haven't really had that kind of impact up there. Um, yeah. But no, I think your point is right that none of the college hitters who started in this early range have, have moved themselves up. And I think another interesting factor for this year's draft is is the difference in evaluations from teams who are more model heavy versus more of the teams who still have more of that old school scouting mentality. Because I think there probably is a pretty, at least compared to all the players that we're talking about in this top range, there's probably a pretty wide split of opinions on a guy like Adrian Del Castillo versus maybe a player like James Wood. I could see teams that are really model heavy, really emphasizing the production that El Castillo has, has managed. Um, and I know there are model teams that don't really bang uh, corner players as much as maybe an old school or a more, we say old school and like model heavy. I think all of the teams use, use models at this point, or most of them do. Um, but I think the, the split in opinions on players like that will be interesting too, because it'll just depend on which team at the top is prioritizing that college performance. I think there's a lot of safety that you can feel with a guy like Del Castillo, where a player like James Wood is the exact opposite, very high risk, high reward type with really loud tools. Um, But you could have some concerns about just a lack of hitting track record that you have with a guy like that. Yeah. it, It seems like there's maybe a couple of college bats that have really jumped up and helped their status. Like I think Sal Freelick has to be one where just the performance he's had has been so loud. Plus you have 
premium position in center field, premium athlete, well above average runner, and and really loud performance, at least uh, so far. And it doesn't seem like that's slowing down to Annie's hitting for power. Yep. It, it seems like he's pretty comfortably, at least at this point, moving himself into this top 10 pick yeah. range. And I wonder, like, he – he he's the smallest guy, right? Of <laughs> of this group, he's he's five foot nine, and I I wonder almost if I don't know would, would he be thought of more if he was six one or oh, I think, or six two? It, I it think almost like, undoubtedly, right? Like if he was six two, six three, two hundred pounds, I'm sure he would be talked about more in kind of the elite group of the class. I think the bias towards shorter players has has started to go away a little bit, but I think we talk about that more with pitchers. Well, actually that's not, that's not true either. Cause Nick Madrigal, it wasn't that long ago that Nick Madrigal went in the top five picks and he is not exactly a big guy. So yeah, I, I yeah. don't know. I think it, it might be safe to say that that bias has gone away. Maybe, I mean, maybe we're light on him. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be crazy for Frelick to be the first college hitter off the board. We have him as the number two college hitter right now. But if he keeps performing, why couldn't he jump up into that kind of elite tier that we were talking about earlier? Yeah, like you said, Madrigal was a fourth overall pick. Obviously, he was, you know, middle infielder coming out of college, but, you know, really, really more of a a second baseman. Uh, Freelix, still middle of the diamonds. You Mm -hmm. don't have the, not the infield, but still premium position. And he's certainly, he's bigger than (laughs) Nick Madrigal. I don't know what Nick Madrigal is officially listed at, but (laughs) I'm sure, I'm certain he's... I'll see what he's listed at right now. Yeah, maybe five, seven, but... What's your guess? Let's see. And he's just a, he's just a thin frame guy, and and he had pretty magical bat control too that Freelix is good. Madrigal's on like really like a Wander Franco level, just as far as pure bat to ball, not saying he's as mm. good of a hitter or has going to hit with as much impact. He certainly doesn't have Wander Franco's raw power, but he had pretty special bat control and, and a really long performance record coming out of college. But, but yeah, I, I see, I, I think sometimes with, with short hitters, they have advantages that, the ultra tall, like the six five, six six hitters. I think sometimes we think of size as this a, a great strength for a player, and and you know it it can be a strength. But in in baseball, I think shorter players have you know there's some drawbacks to being smaller too. But I think there's a lot of advantages to it also that are kind of kind of sneaky i mean one of the most important things you can do as a hitter is to control the strike zone and if you're five eight five nine <laughs> uh then then you have a much smaller strike zone mm-hmm. that that pitchers have to come into compared to somebody who's six four six five uh if if you're if you're five nine you, you have a smaller so you have that smaller strike zone your your plate coverage is probably going to be better because there's just a smaller surface area of plate <laughs> you that you physically have to be able to to cover if if you have good in terms plate. of the height. Yeah, yeah. Just in yeah. terms of the the height of going going up and down. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. the plate is still the same across for yeah. <laughs> for taller hitters versus shorter hitters, but 
you you just have less area that you have to cover mm-hmm. as a hitter and and pitchers have a, a narrower strike zone that they have to come into and if you're five five eight five nine you know everybody's limbs are, are different lengths everybody's mm-hmm. body's a little bit different just just because you're you know you could be six feet with really long arms too you see that on a lot of pitchers but if you're if you're smaller in, in general you're probably going to have shorter arms which is going to help you have a more of a, a compact swing versus if you're if you're six five if you're six six it's it's really hard to have an, a, a short compact swing just because the length of your levers is so long there's probably going to be some length to your swing you're again going to have a bigger strike zone that you're going to have to uh, cover or that's going to get called for for a strike and and even I think there's some evidence and, and research that the ultra ultra tall hitters like an Aaron judge mm-hmm. they get hosed even more by umpires who just aren't used to yep. seeing hitters who are that big maybe it changes with the automated strike zone that's probably coming at some point in in the future but I now, wonder I if even a, a umpire bias not you know <laughs> not that they're uh have some sort of anti-tall hitter, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 that's not it. It's, it's just, they're not used to calling those strikes that yeah. are calling the strike zone for a hitter. Who's that large. I almost wonder if the, the robo zone will be even worse for tall hitters than it is for, for smaller guys. Cause depending on how they set up the zone, I could easily see it going the opposite way too, where if you're a really tall guy, um, just aren't used to calling pitches that are that high and you see the catcher move up a lot significantly higher than he he typically would to frame a strike and you just kind of get the benefit of the doubt because the zone typically isn't that big but if the if the zone is always determined by your height i could see that becoming e- even more beneficial for for shorter hitters like you were talking about but really quickly nick madrigal you were i think you said five seven that was your guess yeah if if baseball references to be trusted at least he's listed at five eight 175 but another guy who's kind of right in the same height range that we're talking about with him and Frelick is uh, a guy named Mookie Betts he's listed at five foot nine 180 uh, and has only been a top 10 MVP guy for the last five years so yeah or Dustin Pedroia or Jose Altuve yeah. and yeah like like you know Altuve is obviously an anomaly but mm-hmm. these guys do have certain mechanical advantages that and and look, if you're six six, you, you do have also other advantages too. But it's uh, to me that I mean, there's almost like a sweet spot of you know somewhere between I don't know five eleven six two, mm-hmm. <laughs> where you can probably play. You know, it doesn't rule you. Your your height doesn't necessarily rule you out of any position, and it's mm-hmm. it's kind of a nice sweet spot I think for for a hitter to to be and obviously you can be a successful hitter at uh, all sorts of different heights but yeah I, th- I think there's a lot of sneaky advantages that shorter hitters have that often gets looked at as as a weakness that can it can can be a benefit for yeah. for those guys are there any other players uh, that come to mind any other prospects that come to mind that you think are fit into this kind of undersized or, or smaller category that really excel um well i i mean i i got when i when i think of freelick too i i think about corbin carroll right mm-hmm. like what what would be the like corbin carroll was a, a what a mid first round pick yeah coming out of high school 
and maybe what if 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 Corbin Carroll had been six foot two, do you, do you think he would have gone higher? He's what five? Yeah, Carroll. Five, five, ten. Uh, Carroll was taken with the 16th overall pick to the D-backs in the 2019 draft, signed for 3.7 million, and he's listed at 510. Um, but again, these are all just listed heights. And yeah, did you, I don't know if you saw. Did you see JJ's story about the automated strike zone coming to the? I forget which league it is in the minors because they're doing it at all mm-hmm. different levels. But I, he said they're gonna believe it. They're gonna. Like officially measure them or something? Well, I, yeah, the strike zone is going to be the automated strike zone is going to be based on the on the height of the hitter. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I I have a funny feeling that especially as this expands and if it ever comes to the major leagues, we're going to see a lot of players uh, suddenly shrink. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. If you're if you're basing it on their height, you would have to have some sort of way to uh, officially measure them, right? <laughs> You can't just let yeah, a player well, fill out I, a card. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm five uh, yeah. foot six. John Aaron Carlos Judge, six Stan foot is, four. <laughs> yeah, he's gonna be saying he's five yeah. eleven. I, I I would hope that they would officially height weight. Well, I guess the weight mm-hmm. doesn't matter so much for strike <laughs> zone. But but yeah, I would think you got to you would have to officially have somebody from MLB or somebody independently measure these hitters when when you're putting them in an automated strike zone league if, if you're going to be basing it off height because I, I promise you some of these guys who are listed at six foot are actually five ten some of these guys who are listed at five nine or five ten or yeah five, i would imagine six, that five, five, seven. five eleven is probably the least used height just in general in the world like if you're five eleven you're you're probably saying you're six foot right I don't. Yeah, I think most guys who are actually five eleven are saying they're six foot. <laughs> yeah. A lot of guys who are listed at five eleven, that probably means they're five nine. <laughs> I think we're going to see some guys shrink, but yeah. yeah, I mean, like I think I don't know Corbin Corbin Carroll, for example, is I think his, his stock has only grown mm-hmm. since since the draft, right? So obviously, last year all the information was really from the from the alternate side and, and from mm. instructional league, but the reports there on him were, were outstanding. He's our mm-hmm. number one prospect for the diamondbacks organization. And they have some pretty good players in there. <laughs> I would say who could fit into that top spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Corbin Carroll is our, you know, number 42 overall prospect in, in baseball right now, not too far removed from his draft year. He's probably, I don't have his age right in front of me, but he was, you know, drafted a, a couple of years ago. So I think he's probably just about the same age, maybe a year younger than than Sal Freelix. So he was born August twenty first, two thousand. So that would make him about to be. He'll be twenty one at the end of at the end of the year. Yeah. August. So yeah, I mean, those two guys are about the about the same height. They're both seems like you know really good hitters mm-hmm. uh probably because just a few months older he has an april 2000 birthday or, yeah. excuse me uh yeah that's right april yeah, 19th they're, they're both both well above average runners in mm-hmm. in center field i think you know i'm not saying they're the same player but yeah i think that's an interesting comparison because they do have a lot of similarities i think the one thing that that maybe separates carol and frelick is and i also just want to talk about how good Corbin Carroll's batting eye is 
he's still – I don't think I've seen a player that has a, a better idea of the strike zone and a more disciplined hitter than him. It was always ex- extremely impressive to watch him spit on really good pitches that were just off the zone or just off the plate, and he would spit on them with confidence. Like, he was absolutely – confident in what the zone was and his ability to track pitches and identify pitches and not swing itself out of the zone. I think it, at least in, at this point, I think Frelick has similar bat to ball, like pure bat to ball skills. I think he also has a tendency to expand the zone a little bit, but he'll expand the zone and double down the left field line and fly out of the box and, and make it, it'll, it'll be fine for him. I think that is maybe the only the only difference that jumps out to me is the plate discipline. And this is like a very specific difference. And I think their overall tool set size profile, like you said, is pretty similar. Yeah. And I, and I think again, it, it that what you're talking about with Carol, it, it plays into his strength. Like not, you know, if, if he was six foot four, he would have a, you know, six foot five, he'd, he'd have a much larger area of the plate that, that he'd have to cover. Now look, like you, what the things you were talking about as far as pitch recognition, vision, being able to pick up spin out of a pitcher's hand, that, that obviously doesn't really have an impact or, or your, your height doesn't have any impact on, on your ability to recognize a, a breaking ball. But having that smaller strike zone that you have to cover, that I think that's, that, that really plays into his, his strengths and it's, it's an advantage for him mm-hmm. that you know, some bigger hitters just don't have. Whereas, yeah, like we, we think of it as a, a weakness sometimes, but, but it actually can be a, a sneaky advantage for, for some of these smaller hitters. Yeah, kind of going the opposite way. Are there any like longer levered guys or taller guys who you're, you're concerned about their hit tool because of these reasons? Whether it's, whether it's um, just not being able to identify the strike zone as well or, or holes that are maybe in their swing because they're a little bit longer? For the for the draft or for Either players? And- I think for the – I mean, the obvious one to me for the draft is probably – at least at the top is James Wood. I mean, he's right. a massive – he's a massive hitter um, who – yeah, I, I – but it's interesting to me because I, I don't really look at his swing and think, man, it's a really long swing. And maybe that's just because of his bat speed and, and his handset and he just has a lot of things going on there. But I, I think that would be a concern with teams. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like he of these guys who we have stuffed up in the top, you know, fifteen or mm-hmm. or so players. It does seem like the variance on where where teams will have him on their boards, or or even maybe you know where internally within a club where mm-hmm. your area scout and your regional cross checker and your national cross checker and and your scouting director and other people who are in your organization will see him. It just seems like he would be the guy where there would be the most, most variance of, of opinion, the most split camp compared to some of these, these other players who are in that range. How about any pro prospects? I mean, the big, like the biggest guy is, is O'Neill Cruz. He's That's just the guy such that an always about. <laughs> unusual guy. He, well, he, you know, he's just so unusual in, in so many ways. Cause he's, like bef- when he was an amateur player, I'm trying to remember it so I, I make sure I get it correct. But I believe, like when he was 
fifteen. He was about, I think, the year before he signed, he was six foot one, and then I think by the time he signs, he might have, he may have grown at that point to six foot four, and then so you know you're scouting a guy at fifteen who's a what a six foot one shortstop. By the time he officially signs, I believe he was six foot. He'd grown to six foot four. I think by the end of that year, or maybe the following year, he was six foot six with the with the Dodgers, and now he's six foot seven. Obviously, got traded to the Pirates. So you're thinking, okay, well, six foot seven. <laughs> what? <laughs> There's no chance this guy's going to play shortstop, <laughs> but somehow he's he's still there, and he. I mean, he he has so much. He has so much bat speed and strength and leverage in his swing to generate, I mean, pretty close to top of the scale type, type raw power. Um, but yeah, with him again, it's, it, there, I mean, there is some length to the swing. If you're mm-hmm. six foot seven, I like, like Miguel Cabrera is six, four, right. But he has really short arms for such a, a big guy so he's able to keep his swing and he's just a mm-hmm. absolute mutant of a hitter so he's able to keep his swing really compact and, yeah. and efficient with with Cruz there's some some length but again also just a, a much bigger strike zone that he has to cover and his pitch recognition is just okay mm-hmm. it, it's certainly not a strength of his so that's that's an area where it yeah, I I I don't even know what to project from 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 O'Neill Cruz. He's such an unusual player, but I I think that size gives him some strengths as far as his ability to to impact the ball and and the leverage that he has in his swing. But having that big of a strike zone to cover for him, especially with where his his pitch recognition ability is, is is a pretty big risk factor too. I'm sure that there, there's this research is out there and I'm just like, I haven't read it yet or I'm not aware of it, but I'm, I'd be really curious to see some sort of like analysis into like the wingspan of hitters and the success rate of various uh, like types of wingspans. And also like just talking about all of this, it makes me think of how in the NBA, I'm pretty sure when, when people go through the combine or just generally in the league, it seems like everyone knows the wingspans of every player just because that's such a such an, a necessary or just knowing the wingspan of like a point guard for your ability to to pass or to get steals or in the opposite way for shooters, uh, maybe it's more conducive to to repeating their shooting shot. I'm sure teams plug in wingspans and this sort of stuff into their models, but I'm really curious as to how widespread that is and like if in baseball we'll ever just know like, oh, Aaron Judge's wingspan is X compared to Jose Altuve's, which is X. Because we don't really generally talk about wingspans in baseball, but I'm really interested in it now. Yeah, I don't know that, uh, well, I don't know that MLB does a great job publicizing a lot on the, at least on the amateur side <laughs> generally. So, but but maybe, I mean, look, there's, I mean, the cool thing is MLB, and, and you wrote about it, they're putting together some of these new pre-draft. You say cool, not everyone thinks cool. No, I... <laughs> Hey, if, I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's fine. I think it's a good idea, but yeah. there are definitely people who just seem 
they're not for it. <laughs> so, so what, yeah. So what is, I mean, we've talked about before how MLB is putting on the pre-draft combine, right? So it's what 90, 96 players, something like that in June. Well, I also the think the, the 96 players, that's the high school players who are invited specifically to play games and to do workouts. And then I think what, what's also part of it is just like a medical evaluation. And I don't think that's limited to just the, those high school players. But oh, so they'll bring in everybody for well, again. It's it's a voluntary, so you don't have to go. So I imagine a lot of the top players just won't go to that because at least right now they're not really incentivized to hand over medical information for no gain. If I, you go, do you have to give them the medical information? I'm not positive. I would just, yeah. I would think so, but I also there's no way for them to force them to give anything over. I don't think so. Because I know still internationally, more details on that internationally mlb does showcases i mean yeah i don't know that's a little bit different though the way they they do it there but yeah i mean they're they're gonna have this they're gonna have this pre-draft combine but then you were also writing about how they're having some other events yeah i think last week at some point on march 18th we wrote about it there they announced six pre-draft pdp premiere events which is the prospect development pipeline that USA Baseball and MLB does. Um, and it, they're basically regional invite-only events that MLB and USA Baseball are putting out to get some of the top amateur players in, in different regions of the country. Um, and it sounds like they're going to do a lot of testing in terms of like just getting data on players, whether that's like Rapsodo or Edgertonic type stuff, spin rate stuff. Uh, I think there are visual assessments. So there's a lot of th this kind of like combine type assessments that are going to go on um, in addition to some on-field evaluation. And I, I would assume that these are going to become the norm for the draft schedule. There's been a lot of change in, in how the draft plays out in terms of the events. Um, MLB is getting a lot more involved in running and, and starting these events to get players in so teams can collect data have a chance to evaluate players. Um, but I really feel like the data and, and all these things that we're talking about is the big selling point for teams. Because this year, it, it might be useful to have some extra on-field looks because you didn't get that in the spring last year or in the summer. But I can't imagine that all of these teams are not going to just love getting access to more and more data for all of these players. Yeah, I, I think it's... it's I, I, I like that they're... Mm -hmm. doing this MLB is again like you said it's all, all these events are voluntary they're not forcing yeah. anybody to to I mean, go I, there so I don't yeah, know why it would be a bad thing to give teams and players an extra opportunity to to showcase their skills like I don't see how that's a negative yeah I mean I, I think the because I I've, you know I've seen this internationally like there are some there, there are some scouts who would say, I don't want MLB to put on any showcases for international players because that don't just socialized scouting. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it, it creates these community scouting events. And we mm -hmm. think as an organization that, you know, we're, we're one of the best scouting organizations down here meanwhile i would say most teams think they're better than average 
<laughs> at scouting anyway. So that's if another story. If you do the story. math for all of that, you just got yeah. a lot of above average teams, right? But but their their idea is, hey, we don't want all these players to come out here and just get, you know, ha- give give all thirty clubs easy access to see all these players. Let us all go out on our own and do our own work, and we can beat other clubs. Yeah, and and do better do our homework and, and outwork these other teams and find these players uh, and, and do a, you know, more thorough evaluation yeah. than, than other clubs on these guys. So I think, I think that probably plays into it somewhat where, where there's some mentality among certain clubs or at least among certain scouts where they say, Hey, don't MLB should just be, shouldn't be putting on these these events let mm-hmm. us let us just go out and and do our own thing and and compete that way ben have you have you ever read dollar sign on the muscle yes it it reminds me and, and i think this is just interesting how the international market in a lot of ways just seems like how scouting used to be done domestically a long mm-hmm. time ago just because reading that book that's basically what all those scouts talked about and, and there are stories of of how scouting was changing in that book, I believe. I don't remember exactly when it was published, um, but it's a pretty old book. So it gives you kind of like a lens into what the scouting world used to be. And that, that's exactly what scouts wanted to do is go find guys that no one else knew about. And since I've been involved in it, it's kind of the exact opposite where it, it is the norm for all of these high school players co- to come together at all these showcase events and tournaments where you really pull the best players from around the country into one area and every team has their scouts there to, to see them. So it is very much a regionalized scouting environment domestically for the most part. I mean, that's not to say that scouts can't find guys who other teams don't know about. I mean, Evan Carter was just drafted in the second round. He was not a, a showcase pony type of player, and most teams didn't really know that much about him. And the Rangers took him in the second round and gave him a couple million dollars. Uh, so it still can be done. But I just find the the difference in how scouting works domestically versus internationally really interesting. It, it's it's almost like the international space is like ten or twenty years behind the domestic space in terms of how things are changing and how it, how it operates. I feel like there are a lot of scouts who who maybe wish that it was more like that overall. I think it's uh, there's just definitely a lot more freedom. I think that you have on the international side compared to the domestic side, obviously the biggest one being the fact that there's a draft (laughs) in the United States and and there is not internationally, which is what I think draws so many people. Which if you, if you haven't listened to our second podcast, Ben, I think our second, maybe our first, one of our first two podcasts, Ben talks a lot about the international draft that is most likely coming. So if you're interested in that and haven't listened Definitely go check out that episode, but go ahead. Yeah, there. and I'm I'm hearing even more and more that's, I think, very likely coming. Again, with the caveat that all of that needs to be collectively bargains. But yeah, you know, look, internationally, you can go out, and if you want to sign Wander Franco, you can sign Wander Franco. You have to... Just don't give him too much money or else you can't sign anyone else, you know? Well, you, but if you if you wanna if you wanna put all all your bonus pool money into Wander Franco, or you wanna put all your bonus pool money into Jason Dominguez, you can do it. It's I mean, one team is the Yankees, one team. But is if the you Rays. want them both, 
well, they're different years. So, <laughs> well, what if you want two guys like that in the same year? You can't do it. But yeah, no, I, I see your point. It is a good one. Yeah, there's a lot more freedom. And, and look, there is a lot of those community scouting events interna- internationally, too. And so some of it's from Major League Baseball. Some of it's from places like the Dominican Prospect League or JDB Baseball or the International Prospect League or, or just a bunch of these trainers who are realizing that, hey, look, if, if we put our players together and uh, pull, pull, pull a bunch of our best players together and put them in games, one, that's going to be good for their development because I don't, I don't know if there's like a radical opinion now, but probably the best way to get better at baseball is to play baseball games. So, <laughs> uh, so that is an advantage. And having these guys all, you know, together in games, especially if it's a bunch of the top players from our, our programs is going to bring more scouts there. And, and it's going to have value for, for it's going to add value for, for everybody, for the players and for the scouts and, and the clubs as well. So I think, you know, you, you do see more of that, but obviously it's, it's a lot different in the United States where every player plays for, whether it's a high school team, a travel team, or a, a college baseball team where you have a, a schedule and nice stadium you, you go in and sit at compared to, you know, thousands of players or thousands of different programs across the Dominican Republic and Venezuela. So it's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's a lot easier or it's a lot more common to sign a guy that very few other clubs have seen or even know about who who might end up being a, a really really good player but i i mean and that, I, so i i going back to the pre-draft events that mlb is putting on i think that's i mean it, it seems like the, the combine like that that would probably attract i don't know do, do you think that would that would attract a lot of the top high school players in in the class i mean i think I, again, this is kind of the biggest question I have is like, what is the, if it's voluntary and if the combine is basically just there to get medical information on these players, I don't really see what the incentive is for the top guys who know kind of the range that they're going in to go hand over medical information that might hurt them. Like it it seems like there's little benefit to them uh, for going there at this point. And again, that could change when MLB releases more details about the combine. They said they were going to, we're still waiting on that, but it's really all up in the air for me at this point. I feel like it's more beneficial for players who are not in that top tier to go give over this information. Because again, if you're, if you're a player in a group of many players, who's kind of a third to sixth or seventh round range talent, and you know there are a significant number of those players looking to be drafted in that range, then sure, maybe handing over some medical information um, will get you ahead of some other players just because teams can feel more confident. But for the guys who are going at the top and know they're going at the top, if they're willing to sign there, it, it really I don't, I don't understand what the benefit would be for them until we get to some sort of system like the NFL or I'm not – sure what the NBA's is where everyone just goes through it it's not really voluntary you just do it um and I think we're probably heading that direction but I'm curious how we get there yeah I guess I could see a situation where MLB invites Jordan Lawler 
in June and Jordan Lawler just dominated his high school season and yeah, the Pirates like, are thinking about taking him number one overall where he doesn't go. Mm-hmm. But like, what is I, the incentive for him to go there in that situation? Right. So for, for him, I would say for him, if you, if you have a real clear idea that if, if you go, there's not really going to be much you're going to do that's going to help your stock. But yeah. for, but for a lot of these other guys, I, I wonder like, like Joshua Baez, right. An mm-hmm. outfielder from, from up in my area here in, in Boston. So he's going to play this spring i'm sure he's gonna either just dominate or get walked a lot and not (laughs) not face a lot of (laughs) probably get walked a lot yeah yeah just not face a lot of great competition here he look i don't think there's any question about his tools or his Mm. size athleticism this guy's he's six foot three Mm. really athletic uh, up to I think 97 on the mound too as just like a hobby that he has when he when he does that but <laughs> huge arm strength some of the best raw power in the class he's young for his class too there's some swing and miss risk there I don't know what he's gonna do this spring that's gonna answer too much of that maybe against the pitching that he's gonna face during I mean, I don't even. A lot of schools in Massachusetts don't even know what their and and just in the Northeast in general don't know what their schedule is is going to be this spring. Mm-hmm. Some of them that have come out are very condensed schedules too. So it could be something where okay, well, yeah, maybe I I do want to go down and it, it treat it like a, like a like a summer event from the mm-hmm. you know from your previous summer where you are going out. And you're being seen at these big events against the other top players in the class. And if you, you know, believe in yourself and you're confident in, in your own abilities as a player, you want to go out and and face those some of the other top players in in the country and mm-hmm. prove yourself and and help your draft status that way. Because he goes there and he faces, you know, Andrew Painter. Let's say for example, that's that's a good example. Let's say he you know, he hasn't been as, as crisp as a lot of people were expecting him to be early on in, in the season. Um, we know we had him as the top, we had him as the top high school pitcher on, on the board coming yep. into the year. Right. Yep. So, you know, pretty I, clearly I, in his own tier too in the preseason. Yeah. So he's kind of dropped a, a little bit, obviously it's early. We haven't buried him by any means, but if he, you know, if, if he continues to pitch this way, that could be where, all right, maybe later in the season, it, it, he wants to go out and say, look, I, I want to pitch here mm. and prove myself against, you know, Joshua Baez or Harry Ford or Joe Ma- or, or whoever who's, who's showing up there to this, to, to the MLB draft combine. Cause I, I think that could have a, a, a positive impact for, for those players. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I think, I'm very interested in this, in seeing which players end up going to this and how impactful the on-field looks, however many they get, winds up being in a player's stock. Because from my, from my perspective, I've just kind of assumed that teams are more interested in getting their hands on medical information so they can feel safer um, taking a player and not having to get a physical done after the fact and then having to either rescind an offer or lower an offer 
from most of the people I've talked to, that is like the biggest thing. And I am curious to see how much outside of that winds up being more like an NBA or an NFL combine where you can actually show up to it and show what you can do on the field. Um, whether that's a workout environment, whether that's a game environment and, and change your evaluation. Cause I feel like it is a lot harder to do that as a baseball player and just how the sport is than it would be for an NFL player to go just absolutely insane at like a combine in the 40 yard dash uh, and with all the measurements that they use, but maybe I'm just more skeptical of it than you. Um, but either way, really excited to see how it plays out. Yeah. I, I think that if, if, if they do get a bunch of the top, again, you don't need to have every top player there. Like if, mm-hmm. if Jordan Waller or Marcelo Meyer are like, no, nah, I don't need to go there. Okay. You can still have a bunch of the top players who are from, from all around the country be there. And you know, every scouting director and probably every general manager, maybe every GM won't be there in person, but I'm sure they'll have video too, is going to be, is going to have eyes on this event. I think if, if you're a player and and you go there and you perform really well and, and you look really good there against a bunch of the other high level players from, from around the country, I think that that can really have a, a big impact on, on a player's stock. I like, like, like a Maddox Bruns. I'm thinking of who, what's, what's the book on him right now? It's some of the best pure stuff. I think, I think probably without question, he has the best pure stuff of all the high school pitchers. And there have been some scouts who have told me that his pure stuff stacks up with every pitcher in the class. It's a fastball from the left side up to like 97, 98 at his best. He's shown two different breaking balls that at times have been, plus uh, or better and the the question with him is just how many strikes is he going to throw and so far this spring it sounds like he's thrown strikes pretty well again it, it might be harder to tell based on the competition uh he's facing but the reports on him this spring are pretty solid but yeah kind of high risk high reward profile with really elite stuff questions so, of athleticism control so that's where like that's that's an example of a guy where you know if i were advising him i, I would i would probably encourage him to go to that event and say, look, you were, if, if he's throwing more strikes this spring, if he, if he goes out and does it against the top high school hitters in the country, instead of, you know, whoever's in his conference that he's pitching against in Alabama, if he goes out and, and has a, you know, I don't know how many innings he would actually, they would let these guys throw necessarily. <laughs> so maybe that's another factor, but you know, let's say he goes out and throws, three or four innings, no walks, strikes out a bunch of guys, looks really good there, and he's doing it against, you know, Max Muncy and, um, you know, Braden Montgomery, whoever, like, you know, some of the better hitters in, in the class. I, I think that's, that, that, that's an event that could really propel some guys up, up draft boards, and especially it'll be right near – right near draft day too so it's going to be that you know fresh most recent look in people's minds so i think that's gonna stick with um uh, stick stick with clubs too so i'm not saying that you know <laughs> it's it's not gonna you know vault a guy hmm. you know some absurd amount well, but i do think it's it, it's I, gonna I make that, guys money i think that is a good point though too because like even a guy like daniel lynch 
he improved his stock pretty significantly in the ACC tournament his draft year just mm-hmm. by coming out and showing better stuff. So, so I do think you're right that it does not take it does not take a ton of time or a ton of looks to really impact your stock if you're doing something really well. Or alternatively, if you come out and look really bad, you can you can pretty severely hurt your stock in a short period of time. So. I think that's a good point, Ben. Yeah, no, it could uh, like it could absolutely work the other way too. <laughs> exactly. Where you go out and you look horrible right before the draft. You have a you yeah. know a rough week or whatever it is. I think that's where I there I keep coming back to. Like I feel like all of the advisors for these players are really trying to mitigate risk at this point, and especially if they're like still seen as like top fifty, top one hundred types. Just the the amount of risk that these guys aren't going to want them to take on um might hold them back but yeah I mean, there's certainly going to be players who are going to bet on themselves and no matter what no matter where they're at on the board they're going to want to go out and, and play and, and probably most of them are like that so it's, it's an interesting dynamic and yeah i think I'm there's also a, see how it plays out i think there's also a prestige thing too like look if you're a high school player they you know they, they like having the accolades too of being you know, a baseball America, all American or, or playing in the, you know, different, different big prominent events during the, the summer. And if you put MLB's name on it, I mean, the, the MLB, this was, this, so this is back in 2019 because they didn't have the PDP in, uh, in 2020 because of the pandemic and everything. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that, that that was obviously done the summer prior to their draft year, but they had all the, I'd say all, but a lot of the top players from around the country went to that event. I'm, I'm sure MLB will put on a, a a strong press to to get these guys to come to the event. I think I think a lot of the kids will just will just want to go to the event just to have been invited and and to be to be a part of it. I think they're going to, I think they're going to want to go. Well, we'll see what happens. Um, it'll be interesting. No doubt. Uh, I think before we get into some other topics and some reader questions, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you guys for listening until this point. We'll be right back. And we're back. Uh, I think we are probably just going to jump right into some listener questions. Um, again, I think we mentioned it on last week's podcast. We do have a Twitter account now. If you guys want to send any questions to that, you can at any point and we'll be checking that and throwing it into our little show sheet here so we can go over it. It's at future pro pod on Twitter. And we do have a question from someone who asked it on Twitter uh, from Jack Cecil. He asks, have you ever considered grading unique player traits, throwing accuracy, route efficiency, barrel control, swing decisions, and blocking come to mind? but countless more exist on the offensive side alone. Can you think of any eighties in these subcategories? This is a really good question. I feel like. Yeah. I, I think scouts do break down all of those attributes into that, that aren't necessarily just the five traditional tools on a 2080 mm-hmm. scale. Uh, I mean, we just in life break down <laughs> everything on, on the twenty. 80 scale so including uh, fast food restaurants right so to uh to some acclaim or less <laughs> less than acclaim but but yeah i, I know I've, I've heard 
scouts talk about, oh, yeah, this guy has plus hands or this guy has 70 hands or or whether you're looking at, like you said, arm arm accuracy or or bat speed. Yeah, this guy has well above average bat speed or or yeah this guy has a a 70 arm but it's it's 30 accuracy yep i think bat speed throwing accuracy instincts like baseball instincts i think those are the most common probably that i can think of in terms of like aren't really traditional five tools but are components of them or pieces to them that get broken down pretty commonly i think blocking probably fits into defense overall like when i talk with a scout about a catcher's defense he typically will go over receiving blocking uh calling a game throwing obviously throwing is a separate tool but kind of all those things and and just athleticism flexibility and actions behind the plate so i think yeah i I think they definitely grade those like you could have a guy who is a really advanced receiver but is not necessarily a great blocker. And, and those two will combine with, with other attributes to get your overall fielding grade for a player. Um, but I yeah. think it's interesting. When, I mean, when we write up a, a, at least a full report on a player, you'll, you'll see a mention of every, you know, hit power or raw power, um, mm-hmm. fielding, arm strength, running speed. We'll, we'll give a, a grade on all, all five tools. But if you know, if if you're if you're writing up a player's, you, you don't necessarily grade out every single player's bat speed or arm accuracy on the twenty eighty scale. But you you can kind of sprinkle it in if you know if you're writing up a report for a club, they'll they'll sprinkle it in sometimes just into the into the report in general or or into that section of of a report maybe. Yeah. Do you have any eighties from some of these maybe subcategories? Like the, the first one I thought of is instincts for Antwitz and Simmons. I don't know how you put anything other than an 80 on that guy. Like he's kind of the epitome of like Uber baseball instincts for me, just creating plays out of nowhere, understanding where he needs to be on the field, understanding uh, the timing of the game. That that's the first one that comes to mind for me. Are there any like really loud tools for any of these that you uh, can think of? I mean- Barrel control probably go obviously uh, Ichiro for mm-hmm. <laughs> for that or maybe even throwing accuracy mm-hmm. too. Uh, in addition to just <laughs> the, the arm strength too, he was yeah. uh, he was a monster. No, that's a good one. How about bat speed? From from an amateur side, I think the two most impressive for me are probably Austin Beck and Al, uh, or yeah, Austin Beck and Austin Hendrick. But- Austin Hendrick is a good one. Yeah, Austin Hendry is a very and, good and one. I don't know. I probably haven't seen enough of the elite bat speed guys in person to say whether or not it's like an 80. But both those guys got, I think at the time we had scouts putting 70s on their bat speed alone. So, Yeah, Javi Baez would be another guy probably mm-hmm. fall into that group too as an amateur. Yeah, I mean, Gary Sheffield, I would imagine his is as close to the top of the scales you can get, right? Yeah, yeah. I did not see him as an amateur, just to clarify. I, I, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of any other ones. I mean, route efficiency. I feel like the, with the way that Savant is going, we're going to have a really a really good way to like pinpoint who is the – I mean, we might already have it in terms of guys who, who take really good routes. I don't have one that comes to mind. It's like, oh, this guy is like an 80. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know about specifying him into that specifically, but mm-hmm. I, I think of like Kevin Kiermaier or yeah. Jackie Bradley Jr. is just mm-hmm. elite, elite. How about plate area. plate discipline is an interesting one because it's not really tied to bat to ball skills specifically, but just zone control. I mean, Joey Votto would be one of the pro- more prominent guys. Yeah, yeah, he'd be he'd be up there like a Dustin Pedroia in mm-hmm. in his prime. Again, another advantage of the the short hitter too. This is this is Ben's new player bias. He wants all the short hitters you can throw at him. Gimme, gimme. <laughs> but a good question. Thank you, Jack, for uh, sending that. Um, we have another question from Jason Kinzel on Instagram. Who are the top three pitchers outside of the top fifty prospects that we might talk about, like Mackenzie Gore, in two years? Uh, I've got a list of guys. Ben, do you have any names? Or you want me to go ahead? Yeah, why don't you go with your guys first? Okay. Uh, the the first three that came to mind for me, and it's tough too because if we're talking about guys outside of the top fifty, we're never really going to talk about them like Mackenzie Gore because I don't think Mackenzie Gore was ever outside of our top 50 he was drafted entered in the top 50 has remained there i believe um so there is going to be a difference in any guy who kind of climbs into this top 50 range uh, but quinn priester is a guy that i've been high on i think everybody at the ba in the ba office has been really high on i think he's trending in the right direction just really loud reports from his stuff i feel like he's probably learned so much um about pitching since being in pro ball he was he didn't really have any instruction, any specific pitching instruction as a high schooler. He was just really naturally gifted. I think he applies new information pretty well based on everything I know about him. Uh, so love the stuff, love the frame, love the delivery. Another guy that I really like is Mick Abel. I mean, he is, I just don't know what the red flag or the concern would be in his arsenal or his profile at this point. I think he does everything really well at a high level. I like the fact that he wasn't a super hard thrower in high school in the sense that he wasn't like sitting in the upper nineties. Um, I love his feel for spin. I like his feel to spot his secondaries. I love his frame. Uh, I think he has a chance to really grow into that and just become a monster in a few years. If he's not, I mean, he's already getting to that elite pure stuff and he was before his draft year. And then I think my, um a little bit off the board pick and as a guy we've talked about in this podcast he's not out he's outside of the top 50 because he's not in pro ball yet but jackson job again he's another guy who i really just like all of the elements of his game i like the athleticism his feel for spin is tremendous and you doesn't seem like you can really teach that slider um i think he has a chance to throw a lot harder in the future i think there are probably some things that teams will be able to do in terms of refining his delivery a little bit and i think he's the athlete the sort of athlete who will be able to make adjustments uh, at a pretty good level. So those are the three that come to mind for me. And it, it feels bad to not have a left-hander in that group, but those are the three that came to mind. I feel like you're violating your, your, your principles, not having a lefty in your, in your <laughs> yeah, group. Yeah, I, I really have been high on some, I mean, if we want to throw a North Carolina lefty in there, Joshua Hartle is pretty good. And uh, I mean, he could, he could fit in that as well. And he might, might make more natural sense to compare as a North Carolina left-handed pitcher who has a chance to go in the first round. Yeah. I mean, you, you hit on two guys in Priester and Abel where, I mean, Priester, it might not even take two years. The, the, the reports on him out of instructional league were just so, so good. 
it's and and he was a good pitcher coming out of high school and he pitched well in the Gulf Coast League that year in 2019 the reports were good on him then and I think the stuff just just kicked up into another gear I'm really really excited to see him I would not be surprised if we're talking about him as a top 10 prospects in in baseball at this time next year obviously still a lot of risk between you know with somebody like him or or Mick Abel but he has that kind of kind of talent kind of upside based on on what he was showing in 2020 even though it wasn't in these publicly accessible games so it was uh not this is not the Pirates pumping up a guy or something like that this is pretty pretty clear I think consensus from people outside the organization who were able to see him just overmatch hitters and yeah Mick Abel he's he, he's in the back of our top 100 now the, the other guy I would I would put in there for me would be uh, Matt Allen of of the Mets we had really good reports of him coming out of the alternate site last year um, you know Again, all, all all three guys who are young high school arms who have either little to to no pro experience, mm-hmm. where I could I could see them if they go out and and dominate moving up the way, you know, like Grayson Rodriguez, who's uh, where do we have? He's our number twenty two prospect on our our top one hundred. I, I could easily see them going out having a year like that. Mm-hmm. next year and, and maybe even jumping up even even higher than that potentially so we really love high school right-handers on this podcast which is a an excellent segue into our next question from jack bean on twitter who asks what are the differences when scouting a high school pitcher versus a college pitcher thanks love the podcast uh thank you for the kind words on the podcast but this question is very interesting i feel like we also probably could could have played a drinking game on this episode with how many times I've said the word interesting, but you know, baseball is an interesting game. Uh, do you have any immediate thoughts on this? I actually ran this one by a few scouts just to, to see what they thought. Um, but if you have any thoughts, go ahead, Ben. Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're, ex, you're expecting more, more refinement, right? It's kind of probably, probably an obvious answer mm-hmm. in, in that respect. You're just, looking for more refinement and, and more polish from a, a college pitcher than you are from, from a, a high school pitcher who's still 17 or 18 years old. And, and if you're in high school, you're also looking at a pitcher who probably is going to be mostly fastball breaking ball at that point. I mean, you do have somebody like Ben Hernandez who was a second round pick of the Royals who has, a extremely advanced changeup, but that's that's pretty rare. Most guys just throw throw you know who are who are prominent high school pitchers who they they throw hard and then they mix in a breaking ball and then they don't really need to throw much of a changeup or, or haven't had much of an opportunity yet to develop a changeup. So you're not really yeah. looking for you're, you're looking for some signs that he has maybe feel for a changeup, but compared to a a college pitcher where you're you're evaluating him and you're, you're really looking for, okay, well, well, does he have that, you know, that pitch mix to be able to start? Does, mm-hmm. does he have that, you know, is the change up there? I mean, you know, you can still project on it some more, but 
you, you have a better sense at that point for whether a guy projects or has the attributes to be a, a starting pitcher versus, oh, maybe this guy might be more of a, a bullpen arm at this point. Mm-hmm. And then I, I also think you can you can project more on or, or you, you can try to project more on on future velocity gains with mm-hmm. with a high school pitcher obviously not with with everybody but you, you can look more at I, I think body type can matter more C- certainly even you know the younger when you go you see this a lot more internationally when uh, you're, you're looking at pitchers who are 15 16 mm-hmm. 17 years old but um, you know you, you can, we, we do see college players who who still throw harder and can do that through just getting stronger or mm-hmm. from some mechanical adjustments. But I think it's more common to, to see that from, from high school players where, where you might be able to still project more velocity, uh, velocity gains from them. Yeah. And I think you hit on a lot of, a lot of the, the ones that I would touch on as well, the, just that deeper projection that you can have for a high school players, probably the first one that you point to. I've talked to some scouts who say like, you can double project grades for high school stuff. Whereas in college, you have to have a really good reason to do that for a college player, just because of the amount of time uh, that they have at the next level, like the gap between time at the next level. Um, Excuse me. I think another one of the interesting ones is like an ability for players to make adjustments or, or a lack of making adjustments. I think teams are much more, uh, critical of college pitchers who either are incapable of making adjustments or, or haven't shown that they can. Cause I think a lot of scouts give high school players who maybe they haven't had really great uh, coaching just yet. There are a lot of things that they might do wrong currently that you'll be fine with because you assume once they get into pro ball, get some better instruction, uh, they can make those adjustments. But I think for a player who maybe had some of those questions in high school, and has now been at college for three years and hasn't like you start to question, okay, this kid is in a, in a program that has turned out pitching. Uh, he has coaches who know what they're doing. They have a pretty, a pretty good program there in the past. Is he not able to make adjustments now? I think that would be a question that you'd have more for college players. Where you'd be more the, uh, on the other end too. Cause mm-hmm. there, I think there are cases too where, where scouts will look at a pitcher from a program that doesn't develop 100%. well, 100%. and they say, Oh, we like, even though this guy has gotten, mm-hmm. you know, his uh, brains kicked in <laughs> for, for, for a while. We, we think this guy has, there, there's more untapped potential here. Yep. We just think his coaches aren't very good. <laughs> and once we get him into our system, yep. we can, we can fix him. Exactly. I, I think that's a great point in the opposite direction, but we kind of talked about it last week with hitters, some of the like West coast hitters who maybe teams were having them specifically try to do something that a pro team wouldn't do. Um, and I think another big one too is scouting high school pitchers as starters, but evaluating them in reliever looks. I think this is what happens for most pitchers over the summer. And especially in a lot of the showcase events, you will be bearing down on a pitcher for an inning or two where they're on the mound throwing to a hundred radar guns. And so, yeah, this stuff is going to seem pretty loud, but it's a lot harder to really see what he's going to look like in a starting role in mm-hmm. high school. So I know a lot of teams, and I'm sure most teams um, put a lot more priority 
uh, on what they're doing in their high school season when they actually can get stretched out a little bit more. But even then, the difference in their high school schedule versus a pro schedule or a college schedule is just so much different. Like that, it's, as far as the quality of competition, you mean? In terms of just the frequency of pitching, the routine for your schedule, like college, even the college game, you have a few more extra days of rest, but it's every every week you're on the mound, you're taking the ball, and you're trying to go six or seven innings. Whereas with high school, it's shorter games. Um, and, and, and I think part of it, too, is the competition. Maybe you won't have to throw as many pitches to get through a mediocre, underwhelming high school lineup. So I think it's a lot more challenging to see how they would pitch in a starter role, like a true starter role that you're going to want them to handle in pro ball out of high school. So it's probably easier to have confidence in the college starter who has taken the ball every week for three years and done it uh, at a higher level of competition. So I think those are some of the things that I would point to. Um, Yeah. And if you see uh, when you do see a lot of the high school kids, go out in like a a showcase environment and they do have to throw instead of one inning if they have to throw for like a third inning you you always see the velocity and the stuff kind of take a step back in that because they're just airing it out for for that first inning or two and then oh all right it it drops which you know which is totally understandable but it's Mm -hmm. not the same as evaluating a guy who's trying to hold his stuff and, and work through a lineup mm-hmm. over you know five or six innings and even from from the hitting perspective i mean there are hitters who are jumping in for an at bat here and at bat there and they're seeing a different pitcher every single time they step into the box so it's certainly not the same as turning over a lineup two or three times over and and having batters get a chance to adjust to you so i think those are all factors that specifically on the on the summer showcase circuit and the travel ball circuit um are, are things that you, teams are going to be aware of um, but no, that's a really interesting one to, to think through. I think it's an important, an important difference in, in the evaluation that teams make between high school and college arms. Um, we got another one from Norberto on Instagram asks, what strategy do you prefer on the international market? Target the top player or players in the class every year with the top bonuses or spread the bonuses around getting more players, but maybe not the ones considered top 15 or 20 in the class. So it, my thoughts are that if, if you look at the track record of the player who we've ranked as the number one player in a given international class going back since, since we started ranking players on, on talent um, for, for the last decade or so, the track record of the number one overall player in a class is really good. <laughs> you have players like Eloy Jimenez, uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Wander Franco. Um, I should say top 16-year-old player in the class. The Cuban players are in a little bit of a different boat. Um, uh, Marco Luciano would be the top 16-year-old prospect in, in his class in 2018. Um, 2019, Jason Dominguez, uh, kind of too soon to say much of anything as far as performance from him, obviously. But the, you know, obviously you, you have some whiffs in there to Adrian Rondon or, or Kevin Maiton, and it's going to happen when you're scouting 16 year old kids. So uh, I, I, I think it's going after the, the top player in a class 
makes a lot of sense on paper. The problem is it's a lot easier to say that than to actually do that in practice, <laughs> right? Because one, you have 29 other teams that are competing to sign that same player and you have to make a decision on who you think that number one player in the class is realistically probably by the time that player is like 14 years old right because that's when a lot of clubs are are making decisions on players who are are committing to clubs at that point so uh it's it's something i think is easy to say in practice but at <laughs> or, or, or it's easy to say in theory but is is harder to execute in reality I will say that I think when the, I, I think, and I think the track record too of the top five to 10 players that we've ranked in a, a given class is, is also really strong. If, if you just go and look at our, our track record, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty proud of, of that. Uh, but also at the same time, some of it is just, well, yeah, like it's just a matter of talking to enough people and, and also <laughs> yeah. having some feel for it yourself. But you know, you, you talk to enough people, it's, it's not hard to figure out that, oh yeah, Diego Cartaya or uh, Julio Rodriguez and Ronnie Mauricio, <laughs> these guys belong <laughs> in the top 10 in, in a given class. I mean, there are players I'll, I'll step out on and, and rank them higher than the, you know, their, their bonus might suggest, like an Andres Jimenez or George Valera uh, or Juan Soto, some other guys. But, uh, you know, for for the most part, yeah, what's <laughs> the 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 guys that everybody or or, or that get the, the guys that really stand out? I think stand out for a lot of people. So once once the draft comes, assuming it it does come in in the next CBA, which is is not a guarantee, but I certainly think it's trending that way. If if you are able to trade picks, for, uh, trade for international draft picks, I, I would put a lot of value on having the number one overall pick in, in the international draft and, and certainly having uh, a top five to, to 10 pick in an international draft. I, I think those are going to be very, very valuable. Awesome. Um, Jimmy Keenan on Instagram asks, what impact will there be on eligible Northeast players with the delayed season start and lost COVID games? Um, it's, I think it's, it's more impactful. I mean, all of these guys are impacted, but I think the, the fact that in last year in the spring, a lot of these players didn't get seen because of COVID, and then they also have a shorter window of playing time this spring, it just means they're a little bit further behind. And you see players from the Northeast heading down South to try and get games with various academies or even transferring to different private schools and programs. I know Mitchell Brad is, is a Canadian pitcher who – is, is playing for Georgia Premier Academy, which is the school that Daniel Espino came out of. So he can get more reps. Um, there's another pitcher, uh, actually, who's in the 300 now, who went down. Jacob um, Steinmetz. To, to elevate, yep, to elevate Academy in Florida again to get some reps. And I think he's planning on heading back to New York once the season actually gets going. But it, it's certainly a challenge for these players. There's only so much you can do in bullpens and in batting practice sessions. Uh, to improve your stock or to solidify your stock or just show what you can do. 
so I think there's no question that it is more impact more impactful for for Northeast players and, and Northern players in general. I mean, in the upcoming issue of the, the Baseball America magazine, I did a story on a big group of really talented players from the West Coast, mostly the Pacific Northwest, but they decided they were going to go down to Arizona. They're going to form a team together with a lot of really talented division one commits and pro prospects and play a bunch of the best teams around the Arizona area. They played Hamilton high, which is a powerhouse out in the Phoenix area. They played Jay Sarah, which might be the best high school team in the country at this point. And it's guys like Thatcher Hurd, Max DeBeck, uh, Malachi Knight. So because they were doing school online, they were able to go down South, continue getting their coursework done um, and play a lot more baseball against much better competition than they otherwise would have. Now for the guys who are able to do something like that, being able to do your classes online and play much more than you ever could is, is really beneficial. Obviously not every player is in that situation where they're able to, to make a move like that. So for the players who can't, I, I do think it is, it's detrimental to them. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Massachusetts and I'm covering the Northeast for us for the draft and trying to map out a schedule for trying to see as many guys as possible. You know, the college guys, well, I don't know, that's not true. Actually, the college guys do have, you know, not Boston college, not South Freelick and, and those guys, but, but some of the smaller schools are having some, some impact, but yeah, especially for, for the high school players. I mean, we've, we, we like we just we just put out a draft update for the top 300 because there's a lot of new information on college players and and some high school players around the country the, the you know up in the northeast the the season hasn't even mm-hmm. started yet so there's not really much to 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 do on that so they, they just get less attention period just because because of the weather in general mm-hmm. but also this year yeah i mean the the schedule is is condensed for for a lot of players this year a lot of I think Pennsylvania is open now but uh, a lot of a lot of clubs are not or a lot of schools are not starting play until I think the first or second week of of April and then they're only playing for about six weeks in in some cases and, and some some schools are are going longer than that but it's you know you're you're, you're trying to work within regulations that the the states have so so teams have a lot of teams have a, a shorter schedule or, or, a, or a modified schedule than what they would normally play and and some teams don't even have a, a schedule out yet they don't even know if they're gonna gonna play in in some instances so yeah I mean it's it's I, I think they did a they did a really good job last summer uh Matt Hyde who's the area scout for the Yankees and, and runs the area code team. They, they had a lot of, uh, or, or, or several different events last summer for a bunch of the top players from, uh, from the area. So got to, uh, you know, got to see players like Joshua Baez, um, Lonnie White Jr., Anthony Solomedo, uh, Shane Panzini, Dennis Collarin, uh, I think really helped his stock, a right-handed pitcher from Massachusetts, um, you know, th- there were a bunch of players from the Northeast for, you know, not just the 2021 class, but even, even younger, you know, 2022, 2023, even you know, left-handed pitcher like Thomas White 
uh, was able to, to get kind of crazy. We haven't talked about Thomas White on this podcast yet, have we? Yeah. Well, if, if, <laughs> if, if the, if the question earlier had been who could jump into that McKenzie Gore range, I think he said in two years, right? Oh, so gotcha. we can't go there yet. Oh, you're but, ready. You're ready to fire from the hip. Get Thomas no, White in there. Um, yeah, no, I just got their schedule the other day, so um, <laughs> I'm excited. He, yeah, he's awesome. teammates with uh, with Santucci up at uh, up at Phillips Andover. So for, for those who are unaware, I probably should give some context. Thomas White is the top ranked player on our 2023 high school list and has shown some pretty incredible stuff for a, a player his age from the left side. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be talking about him more yep. <laughs> as this. Uh, as the years go on or as the spring goes on, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean the, yeah, the Matt Hyde and, and that group did a really good job of getting those players into games and having all the scouts come out to, mm-hmm. to see those guys last year. And I'm, you know, if, if something came down to it, I'm, I, I, I think the high school season will mostly go off as, as normal if there was some need to put together a, a workout for, for guys, I, you know, I think they could work together to, to put together something, but, but yeah, it's going to be more of a more of a challenge, and also just the fact that there's so many players who are really good <laughs> in the Northeast this year, and yeah. you have if you're like if you're a club, you have one Northeast area scout. You might have a, you know, you know, a few different layers of of cross checkers and a scouting director, but you can't be everywhere at once. So it almost I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe you could say it helps them because it'll maybe just bring some other cross checkers into and, and hire, you know, special assistants, those kind of guys into the Northeast to make some more road trips up there. Mm-hmm. But you also just, you can't see everyone at once. <laughs> so if you, at least if you're the area scout, so there, there's a lot of players you got to see compared to, compared to usual over a, you know, pretty big region geographically. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the point about the strength of the Northeast this year because that's something that I've wanted to dive into at some point this draft season to really like go through our ranks and see how this class compares to previous classes because some of the scouts I've talked to so far think this has a chance to be, I don't know, at this point I won't say like a historic year, but a very, very strong year, well above average year for the class, both in terms of like quality of players at the top and just like depth of talent. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's definitely the, that's definitely the consensus from a bunch of the area scouts up here that I've, Mm -hmm. I've talked to. They said it's, it's the best class for this area that they've seen in in a long time. Yeah. So good question from uh, who is that? Uh, Jimmy Keenan. Thank you. We've got another one from Albert Klechko. Sorry. I'm sure I'm butchering your name. I apologize on Instagram. I'm hearing some big time feedback on Michael Harris of the Atlanta Braves. Can or will he become a star? Um, Michael Harris is a really good one. I did the Braves chapter for us. He was just outside of the top 10 uh, on our list. He's fascinating to me because he was a two-way guy in high school. Some scouts even at the time thought he was going to be a better pitcher than a hitter. Uh, But the Braves have let him hit and they've looked pretty good for doing that. Uh, he was at the alternate site last summer, and I think the team was really impressed with the quality of his at-bats. I think at this point, I would probably stop before saying that he's going to be a, a star, but I think he has the tools to become a really good everyday player. Um, he still needs to face upper-level pitching 
over a full season. He's another one of these younger guys who really has been hurt from, from the stoppage last year, just didn't get as many at-bats as he typically would have. But he has above-average power potential, chance for a solid or above-average hitter. Uh, he's a good athlete, above-average runner. Um, curious to see where he fits defensively because I think he probably could handle center field. But again, we're talking about a team like the Braves who maybe have two better defensive center fielders than him in the system and one who has a chance to be one of the best defensive center fielders in baseball and Christian Pache. It's hard for me to see him playing that position for Atlanta unless something goes horribly wrong. Um, but I do think he'll probably be able to grow into enough power to profile at a corner spot and be a good defender there. Um, but yeah, I think for now I would say he has upside to be a pretty solid everyday player. And, and saying that, like, I think sometimes fans maybe understate how good that player is. You don't have to be a star, a consistent all-star to be a very, very good major league player that can change the course of a, a team's competitive window. But um, until Harris really plays against uh, some upper level pitching and proves at a higher level, I think I would probably say solid everyday regular is, is the, the upside outlook for him. Nothing to add on that, Ben? I mean, you did the praise for us, so <laughs> and there well, was and there was no minor league season, so I can't say it much better than you. Cool. Um, Andy Savio on Instagram asks, "What do you see as the ceiling and floor comps for Brennan Davis, an outfielder in the Cubs system?" You can take this one, Ben, if you want. I have less familiarity with that system. I don't know if yep. you have any specific comps, but I, I like Brennan Davis a lot. I mean, it's why we tucked him into the back of our our top one hundred. It's. Uh, good athlete i think he's a good good hitter too you see him make pretty pretty consistent contact again you know for for a guy who's sort of a, a longer longer limb type hitter he doesn't doesn't swing and miss successfully he's got he's got power he seems to be able to to pick up and recognize spin he, he has good speed he has a strong arm uh just a pretty well well-rounded player. I, I wish we, you know, I keep probably saying this a lot for, for a lot of players. I, uh, I wish he, we had just been able to see more of him. Obviously he was injured in, in 2019 for a good amount of the season with a uh, uh, hand or a finger injury that he had that year. So, uh, but I, I, I like him. I like him a lot. I don't necessarily have a, a, a comp, for for him but he's somebody who i could see really really taking off it's it's a lot of a lot of strengths a lot of checkpoints that you look for in in a hitter with uh, a lot of physical indicators going in in the right direction too all right well i think those are all the questions we have for this episode um really appreciate the amount of questions that you guys have been sending in and just the quality of them too. They're, they're really interesting questions to talk through. Some are more player oriented, some are more process oriented. I think it's a good, good mix. So really thank you guys for sending those in and taking the time to do that. Hopefully the, the answers have been uh, what you're looking for. Um, but Ben, I think that's everything we wanted to, to touch on in this episode. I'm not sure how long we've been. We've, we've hit, typically been hitting around the two hour mark. Hopefully it's around the same time this episode, but is there anything else you want to touch on or plug really quick before we get out of here? No, just, we got the, our top 300 draft prospects up right now at baseball America. 
com. So a lot of a lot of new information, a lot of really good work, especially from Carlos leading the charge on our our draft rankings. And you can read all the rankings and and reports. We're going to have some updates too on the the international class, both from you know all the all the main players who signed in in this year's class, or I guess I should say in the January 15th group, since there's also a 2021 class <laughs> to make it extra difficult just to explain everything. So, mm. um, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll continue to have some more updates on the upcoming international class. Um, and I'm, I'm excited. We'll, we'll have a minor league season too. So we'll, yes. <laughs> we'll be it'll to, be nice to, to stop saying, man, I wish we could have seen them play because we are about to see all those guys get started. So, yeah, yeah. It's been, it's been nice seeing usually I don't get juiced up about spring training too much, but it's been nice just to see guys like CJ Abrams and uh, Bobby Witt Jr. and Alec Manoa and, and some of these other guys who've been uh, who were just able to to see on the field again to kind of go with our all of our college looks so far too. Yeah. It's obviously great to have that back so it's uh i feel like this is kind of the best time of year to be a a baseball america subscriber with the all of our our draft coverage cranking out the minor league stuff here we're updating our our top 30s pretty soon with the new international signings from every class and obviously the the upcoming international class too so definitely definitely a lot of reasons to be a lot more uh optimistic and, and excited compared to where we were where we were last year yeah. this time Carlos yeah I, I think I'm already past that point just because the college season and the high school season has been plugging along but yeah a lot of good stuff I think I'll also just just plug really quickly that um if you are interested in a lot of those spring training movers Kyle Glazer had a really good piece on just the guys who scouts have been impressed with in spring training and it's not necessarily just prospects but some younger major league uh, more established players as well um, today, actually, uh, Teddy and Joe on the college side released their first projected field of 64. Um, so if you're interested in just the competitive nature of the college game, that is up for you as well. I think Teddy also did a piece just breaking down how Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker uh, could make draft history as teammates going potentially one and two. Um, so a lot of stuff on their end. And yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, other than that, we really appreciate you guys giving feedback on the pod, rating and reviewing. If you can do that, if you have not done it already, um, the reviews and the ratings really help uh, bring the podcast to, to more people. We want as many people as we can uh, have listen to it because we have fun talking about the game and, and hopefully you guys enjoy listening to it as well. So thank you for those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Again, if you have any questions or comments, or concerns, or if you want to just compliment Ben's analysis of baseball, you can do that at the Future Pro Pod on Twitter, um, and you can also follow that to stay updated when, whenever episodes drop. Um, but I think that is it. Thank you all for listening. For Ben, I'm Carlos. We'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.